You might not recognize their pictures, but you've probably heard their names. Uh, Randall McCoy and Floyd Hatfield. Or if you don't know their names, you've heard of the Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, This feud that went on in their family started in 1862. One of the most infamous of family feuds ever in the history of America. And it all started over a pig, if you can imagine. And over a six-year span, at least 60 family members were killed because of this feud between these two families. And you thought your family was crazy. Uh, You know, conflict, though, is a part of every human-to-human and human-to-God relationship. Even way back in the beginning in Genesis, we see conflict. And even right now, probably in your family, there's some sort of conflict going on in either your family, extended family work, somewhere in your life. It's just the way things are. So I want us to turn again to the words of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. And here again, as Jesus tells us how to deal with, how to handle conflict, especially conflict in the church. Let's read these words. Matthew 15, starting with verse 15. Uh, Matthew 18, starting with verse 15. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you're not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's fascinating uh, words. I love these words of Jesus. But too often in our lives, uh, we rid ourselves of those we disagree with. Or to be more honest, we rid our lives of those who disagree with us. And that's kind of what we're taught. It's the easy way out, almost in a sense. We buy into the lie sometimes that relationships just should come natural, that there should be, they should be easy, there shouldn't be any conflict. Or we buy into the bigger lie that that Christians shouldn't have conflict. But everyone has conflict, and conflict can be healthy. It's a normal part of life. But relationships aren't either easy, whether it's with your spouse, a neighbor, a co-worker, or so forth. And conflict can happen in any relationship. So how do we deal with it? Uh, In the passage we read uh, today, Jesus reminds us as his followers that we can come into conflict with each other. And there are times when we sin against each other, against our brother or sister, and and we have to deal with it uh, because sin has consequences. And instead of just cutting them out of our lives for a period or a time, Jesus tells us we must go to them and try to begin that healing process, that restoration process. It's more than just a misunderstanding. Uh, When someone sins against us, there's definitely conflict. And there's a rift that tears at the fibers of our relationship. And dealing with sin is serious. Uh, And ignoring sin is deadly. Dealing with sin is serious, but ignoring sin is deadly. Sin can affect the spiritual health of a congregation as a whole. And, And we've been brought up too often to think that sin only affects us or maybe a one other person, maybe the one we're, uh, we sinned against, but, but sin is pervasive. It affects everybody. 
we often think that what I do with myself, it's my own business, it's no concern of yours, but this is the wrong way of thinking. Early Christians saw sin as a cancer that threatened the whole body, the whole fellowship. And so it's important that we deal with sin, we deal with these conflicts. It's not just an individual issue. And Jesus' instruction seems so backwards to what we're taught and uh, what others tell us to do. So often when it, when it comes to conflict, to be honest, my first inclination is that I want to win. That, uh, that's really why I, sometimes I enter into conflict. I want to win. That's my first motivation, especially if someone has sinned against me or wronged me. I want them to come to me and apologize first. I want them to make the first move. But Jesus is telling us something very different. He says that conflict is about the restoration of the offender when we prefer it to be about the revenge of the offended. Don't you just hate Jesus' words right here? He tells us that we should make the first move. Even if we've been wrong, we should go to the one who has wronged us and who has sinned against us and try to restore that relationship and, and even show them their fault. That's tough. I agree. I think this is hard. It's not fun. But listen, this is so important. If they listen to you and you win them back, then you win them back to the fellowship. You see, this is not so much about us as an individual, but about the whole body of Christ winning and having a completeness and wholeness. Uh, and Jesus says, if someone sins against you, spare no effort. Get things right between the two of you if you can. Notice Jesus tells us, again, first you go to the one that has sinned against you. He does not direct us to tell our best friends, to tell our spouse, to complain, to sit and stew on it. He says, go to them first. I think that's so important. Uh, and it's because that sin, if we let it to sit, it, it begins to poison our spirit, our attitude, our mind. Uh, and it pulls us away from the fellowship and the community of believers. But often the last thing an offender wants to do is to approach the one that they have offended. But Jesus tells us to make the first move. And if they listen and the relationship is restored, then, then this is awesome. That's a great thing. And that's really what we want out of conflict is the restoration of the relationship. However, here's what happens. If, if the person doesn't listen to you, then you're to take two or three witnesses with you. Now, the taking of witnesses is not meant to be a way of proving to someone that he or she committed the offense. It's not an aha thing. It's more of so that they can help in this process. It's that they can help in the process of reconciliation. He doesn't want us to take our groupies. He wants us to take someone who's mature in the faith that can help look at both sides of the issue and help us come to an agreement to restore the fellowship. Um, that's the important part, to restore the sinner back into fellowship. But what happens if the person doesn't listen to them? Then it says to take your issue to the ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word that is often translated as church. Um, it can also be translated as congregation, those who have gathered together, those who have assembled, the, the fellowship that is there. You know, during the life of Jesus, there really wasn't a church. The church was birthed after Jesus uh, went back up into heaven. But here we have those who have gathered to, to hear his words, to learn from him, who are fellowshipping together. That's what Jesus is saying. 
go to the ecclesia, the gathered ones, and, and share what is taking place. And then the fellowship has a responsibility to take up the issue with the person. And if the person does not listen to the fellowship, then you are to treat them as you would a pagan or a Gentile or a tax collector. And I, and I find this such an interesting concept to treat them like a pagan or a Gentile or a tax collector. Uh, so quick question. Any of you know who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? It's, it's not a true question. Yeah, it, it was Matthew. And what did Matthew do for a living before he came to Christ? He was a tax collector. So here it's interesting to see that the writer of the gospel was actually a tax collector. And how did Jesus treat the pagans and the Gentiles? How did Jesus treat tax collectors? I think one of the fascinating things and one of the wonderful things about Jesus is that he treated them with respect. He never spoke of pagans or tax collectors as hopeless outsiders but he always saw them with sympathy and love. We read in the Gospels that Jesus often was in the company of pagans and Gentiles and tax collectors. That's why he often got in trouble by uh, the religious leaders. And, and there, there's several places where we see these interactions. And he doesn't shrink from those who are outcasts, the unclean, the vile. His interactions with these kind of people so that he can change their lives, so that he can bring them into fellowship. And so even as we treat them as a, a Gentile or a pagan or a tax collector, we treat with respect. We don't uh, you know, talk down to. Uh, I, I love the story that my friend Lou told me at one point. Uh, Lou had a friend named Michael Wells who worked with a ministry called Abiding Life International. And he writes these words. I, I think it's just a, a great story. He says this, uh, and I quote, I was with my friend Roy, who had started a ministry in downtown Denver, discipling at-risk teens. One young man, Ty, would show up in the evenings and we would talk with him about the Bible and pray with him. Then afterward, we'd walk down to the alley to the 7-Eleven and grab a Coke. Without fail, every time we took that walk, this kid would sneak up behind Roy and punch him on the side of the head. Now this kid, Ty, fancied himself a boxer. But I knew Roy in his younger days was a prize fighter. And I kept thinking, there's no way that Roy doesn't see that coming. Why does he let this kid land that punch? Well, one evening, several weeks later, Ty asked Roy to lead him in surrendering his heart to the Lord. It was a great moment full of sincerity and tears. And as usual, afterward, we walked to the 7-Eleven. And as usual, Ty snuck up on Roy and took his swing at him. This time, though, Roy ducked the swing and came around on Ty and just laid him out with one punch. He just slumped to the ground. I stood over Ty and yelled at Roy, You killed him! You killed him! Roy said, I didn't kill him. He's just knocked out. Slap him around a little. He'll wake up in a minute. I slapped him on the face, and after a few moments, sure enough, Ty woke up. As he struggled back to his feet and began feeling his face, we started walking again, and Roy put his arm around Ty's shoulder. He said, now listen, brother, I'll take that off of an unbeliever, but I won't take that off of a brother in Christ. I think it's, I think it's funny, but I think it's a great example of how we are to treat a tax collector or an outsider. Uh, we, we put up with certain things, but we, we know how important it is. Also, it reminds us how that we as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be held to a higher standard of accountability. 
And sometimes we need a swift kick to the head uh, to put us back on track. But that being said, tax collectors and, and, and Gentiles, they were not a part of those intimate discussions of teaching times that Jesus had with the 12. He ministered to them uh, and attempted to draw them closer to the Father, but he did not relate to them in the same way that he did with the 12, with those insiders, with the fellowship. And throughout church history, we've seen uh, it has been the custom to remove from fellowship those who willingly choose to live outside the relationship of the fellowship. So those who choose not to, to live within the bounds of that fellowship are asked to leave. And often this is referred to as excommunication. We don't do it often. But they were out of common unity with the fellowship. And because we see that dealing with sin is serious and ignoring sin is deadly. It can have deadly consequences for the church. John Wesley, the, the founder of the Methodist Church, he had a practice of ridding the societies, which were kind of the church, of dead wood, uh, uninviting those who failed to live up to the standards of the societies, the classes, and bands. That's like the, the groups. In part, this was punishment. In part, this was to prevent willful sin from spreading within the fellowship. And in part, this was to help the offender see that their actions had consequences and to bring about restoration. It wasn't done in a mean spirit. It was, it was so that they could see what was taking place and they, they could be restored. Restoration, real restoration, not patched up splits uh, that will open under pressure. Restoration is not just about putting a patch over an offense. It's about making the relationship whole, complete, brand new. And we see the results of not doing reconciliation every day. You know, terror, broken marriages, shattered families, feuds between neighbors, divided churches. We prefer to pretend there's not a problem. We often refuse to face the facts. We swallow our anger or patch over the cracks and, and we really don't fix the problem. Uh, and so often we rage within while having a, a nice veneer on the outside. But we should be about restoration and reconciliation and not ignoring those who have sinned against us. Pretend that those differences don't exist. You know, many of us take the patching off it, uh, option and we just say, oh, we'll just patch over it, we'll ignore it. And that's really not what forgiveness is. Pretending that everything is all right when it's not all right. Uh, when when it, there is a rift in the fellowship. It, if someone has offended us, we need to deal with those things. Um, we need to make sure that there is restoration and confronting sin, confronting evil, because ignoring sin is dangerous. Uh, ignoring sin actually breaks fellowship. It is deadly to us. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we, we say it didn't happen. Forgiveness says that, yeah, it happened, but we're going to move beyond it. Uh, we need to clear up misunderstandings. Forgiveness is when it did happen. It does matter. And we let go of our right to be hurt, to be angry or to hold a grudge so that we can be healed and the other person can be healed and we are restored to right relationship with each other. Now this, this practice, it's time consuming. It takes guts. It takes courage. It takes work. Uh, but it's worth it. It is definitely worth it. No one is written off in haste. No one is fired on the spot. No one slams the doors in another face in rage. 
To the contrary, uh, a lot of energy is spent trying to restore, to make peace. See, because Jesus calls us to do more than what the world expects. In Matthew 5, he said to love our enemy, not just friends and family. He says that you go to the person and make it right. You don't wait around for them. That you pray for those who persecute you. That you reach out to love, to restore, to reconcile, all for the unity of the fellowship. That's our desire. So I ask as we kind of wrap up, what have you been holding on to? Are you holding on to anger or rage? Have you uh, been waiting for someone to come to you to ask for forgiveness instead of going to them? Maybe it's time for you to take that next step. Uh, Even if you've been sinned against, that you need to take that step to try to restore. Jesus says he's going to be with us. He's going to assist us. Maybe you need someone to go with you to help you out. But if you're struggling with this restoration, you know, call us. We would love to help you as you walk through this journey of of wholeness because we want to be a people who are whole and healed and restored. Where do you need God and his help this day? Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the calling that you give us, that Jesus gives us to take the hard way. But this hard way is the good way. This hard way brings about healing and restoration. And Lord, we just pray that we would be faithful to you. We will all have conflict, but help us not to run away from it. Help us to to set our face into conflict so that we can help heal and restore. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your holy name. Amen. God bless you all this week.